0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by
1: Pograin Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sensing Trouble. Fatbergs. William Stevenson. And Doomsday Prophet, Albert Porta. Choose your
1: hero push your luck. Build colossal combos. If you believe that games should have dwarves, the dwarves should roll dice, and the true camaraderie is hollering cheers and sharing a beer, then Dice Miner is for you.
0: Dice Miner is a tabletop game about drafting the dice you covet, adding them to your hoard, and pushing your luck to score the most points. Published and kickstarted by our friends
1: at Atlas Games. To play, roll a bag full of custom dice down a 3D mountain, then take turns drafting them off. Build straights to score. Collect the
0: most treasure, then double your profit. Avoid dragons and cave-ins, or hoard tools to protect
1: yourself. Reroll dice to push your luck. And don't forget the beer. Find Dice Miner on Kickstarter, beginning May 26th, or go to atlas-games.com backslash Dice Miner to sign up for a launch email in advance.
0: Dice Miner, because every gamer loves dice.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And hey, in the Gaming Hut, look at that. The GM is thumping a lot of miniatures behind that double-fold Frampton Comes Alive album. Looking kind of shifty, Robin. If I were a betting man, I'd bet that the GM is going to ask you to roll sense trouble
0: oh no not sense trouble how many points should i spend oh goodness what's it has the gm alerted me
1: to the fact that there's trouble does this ruin the whole point of sense trouble i don't know i just don't know ken well thank god you have a podcast in which you can explore these and other issues (laughs) in the comforting camaraderie of your fellow gumshoe designer yes so get to exploring robin so
0: there's a pell discord now so uh, the community is, is, is a-hopping over there. If you're interested in joining, uh, uh, hit up uh, Pellegrine Press at uh, support at PellegrinePress.com and they will uh, hook you up with your very own Discord invite. Uh, but uh, interestingly, I uh, saw that some uh, long-time uh, gumshoe heads are not necessarily uh, into sense trouble or are not sure how it should work, and that uh, took me by surprise. But aforementioned... Uh, we have a podcast to fill up segments on, so I thought uh, we would uh, look at that. So I really like Sense Trouble, and I think the, the the key to that is is, first of all, I guess we have to explain uh, it gets you information, but it is not an informational skill uh, in Gumshoe. And of course, this is a dichotomy that doesn't exist in other games, but an equivalent of Sense Trouble exists in almost every game, whether you call it a perception check or in uh, basic role-playing and it's many games it, it's divided out into different senses there's a, a yep. scan and there's spot hidden a, yeah and uh spot hidden and uh can be all sorts of different things listen listen, listen is a classic yes. uh so uh whether it's uh, lumps all the senses together or breaks them apart into granular bits Uh, Basically, this has been a staple of uh, gaming forever. And the idea is that can you tell if something bad is about to happen to you before it happens to you? And I think the main stumbling block, I guess, is that some people feel that it's giving something away to have a a sense trouble test that the uh, players know that they have failed. And some games even have the GM secretly roll that. I think it is actually fun and interesting for the players to know that something bad is happening, uh, even though the uh, uh, characters do not, because that of course uh, brings dramatic irony into play. The disparity yep. of knowledge between the audience and the character uh, and of course, of course the character and audience are one and the same in tabletop role playing.
1: Yeah. It's um, in, in my experience, when I call for a sense, trouble, uh, first of all, everyone gets very excited. Lots of hiding behind their hands and, and looking around nervously. And then someone rolls it. And if, and if they do miss it, oh, it's so much fun because then you're, like, Oh, well, I guess it was nothing. And they're, Oh, they, they, they become such nervous little wrecks. And then they walk into the ambush. And then, you know, the, the bad guys get the surprise round and everything's terrific. Or maybe nothing happens because the sense trouble was to notice an invisible dart that was shot at you by some sort of, you know, uh, malevolent actor who can say
0: right because one of my our, our tests for whether a skill is interesting and worth rolling is is failure uh, just as interesting as success and in this case success is interesting because you get to know that something bad is about to happen in time to do something about it in time to prepare and that can be and often is just abstracted as a uh, a bonus to your uh, next response or uh, it can be uh, in a combat situation, you uh, are either not surprised. So that's the absence of a bad thing happening to you, the absence of a negative modifier, and you mm-hmm. feel cool about that. Or uh, in other situations, you can actually, you know, describe different actions that you would take as you know, you're exploring the uh, old abandoned warehouse, You succeed at sense trouble, you know there's something there. So you get the sense of accomplishment uh, that you're on top of something, but also uh, you get the sense of, I don't know, what what do we sense? Can we sense trouble? So that's more excitement. Mm -hmm. Um, And so succeeding does not blow that sense of anxiety that we talked about, but also failing. Uh, creates that aforementioned sense of, uh, oh, the, char- the scary music is playing and the character is oblivious and they're walking into a trap. Oh, no, what's going to Why happen? Why are
1: they walking into the crypt in their bare feet? What is wrong with these people?
0: Right. So you can have yeah. triumph for fear. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it's hard for me to think of a, an ability that has as a great a positive uh, and negative emotional uh, kick to it. So I'm all for sense trouble.
1: Yeah. And it, 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 you know, it's not just for, you know, ambushes and monsters. It can be the sense trouble as you're walking through that abandoned warehouse. And, you know, you set foot on a, on a board and then there's that moment where you are able to yank your foot back at the last minute as the board rottenly collapses. And you look down and see that you would have plummeted, uh, you know, 50 feet down to the concrete floor below. And that's always a great moment in the movie where you're like, oh, this warehouse is dangerous. It's, uh, our, our very footing is, is bad. This is, this is not a good look. And, you know, even if, you know, there's no vampire in the warehouse and all you're doing is creeping through it, trying to, uh, steal a march on him or, or get to his, uh, coffins, that sense trouble still gave you a moment. It gave you the ability to invest yourself in the emotional tenor of the scene. And that's what role-playing games, especially horror games are supposed to be about is trying to bring the regular sort of player anxieties into line uh, at least thematically with the character's anxieties. And for that brief moment, even if you made the sense trouble, there's the moment where the GM describes the rotting board falling away and then it's false and it, and then you, Oh, you can hear it clatter on the concrete. That was a long two seconds while you waited for it to fall. Um That moment gives you that sense, uh, you know, of, of a grave danger, barely missed. And that's, uh, that's a great thing about it. and, uh, yeah, to take that out of your, out of your, uh, repertoire by doing it silently and then saying, you know, as the players are walking through, you know, cl- uh, r- roll of dice behind your tape, your screen. And then you say, Oh, just as you put your foot down, uh, the, the board caves away and falls and clatters on the uh, concrete below. That's less exciting, I feel, than if the player character or the player rather got to make the roll and then is waiting with. Ten- I mean, it's the difference between suspense and a uh, surprise, right? I mean, it's Hitchcock's great line uh, that uh, surprise is a bomb blowing up. Suspense is seeing the bomb being planted while people are talking baseball. And the moment between the GM calls for sense trouble, the role and the outcome, is a period in which, you know, uh, metaphorically, the game is talking baseball and you're waiting for the bomb to go off.
0: I suppose one reservation about sense trouble is if... If the mere existence of a role gives away something obvious, make it inobvious, right? That suggests then that uh, there is only one possible danger that you have created in this situation. And uh, as GMs, uh, the response to that is have multiple possible bad things, right? Uh, And first of all, you don't even have to, most of the time, come up with what the other possible bad things will be because guess what? The player imaginations will do that for you. <laughs> so if there are creepy uh, demon babies in in the warehouse and you have them uh, roll to sense trouble, well, possibly that could uh, actually refer to the creepy demon babies. But first of all, do they... No, but are they, is that what they're expecting? And if it is what they're expecting, then your sense trouble role that they failed isn't giving anything away uh, anyway, but they're probably expecting a bunch of things. They. Might be worried about the rotten boards you've described or the uh, strange smell in the air. So you can sort of seed the sense of danger by describing things that they will already find creepy. And, and in that case, when you then ask for a sense trouble role, the question is, you're not saying that, oh, suddenly a non-alarming situation has turned alarming, but rather that a whole bunch of terrible things that have been sort of at the edge of your perceptions. Now the actual danger is, uh, is imminent and it's time to, uh, get ready for that for
1: good or for ill. Yeah. The, um, the, the notion is that, you know, they, you call for the sun's trouble, they miss it. You, you, you have ample things that you can do. I mean, there's just oh, it must have just been that rat scurrying away. And then now, first of all, if it's a night's nice black agents game, they're like, oh, there's a rat. That means somewhere there's a Nosferatu commanding the rats. And, and then they make themselves all nervous and terrified. Or, you know, a rat scurrying away is just, you know, creepy anyway by itself. You don't need to, you know, do anything except add that as an atmospheric note. So the sense trouble has done its job and, and built tension. And if the notion is it gave away... I mean, if the if the bad guy only has one, you know, arrow in his quiver, one string to his bow. Yeah, I guess it does give it away if they are only ever fighting snipers and oh, you see the rat running away. Well, I guess there's a sniper here. But what kind of GM in their right mind puts uh, characters in a creepy warehouse with only a sniper to worry about? They should be worried about vampires and ghosts and astral projection and tetanus and all kinds of things.
0: And also, I think uh, something we, we rarely do but is uh, useful is uh, the negative sense trouble test where the uh, players have convinced themselves that something that you mean to be entirely innocuous is terrifying or rather that the, uh, you know, your throwaway walk-on character uh, who uh, – You provide, you know, they're just there to provide a little bit of information and get off stage. And you don't want to torque around your entire plan for the session to make him the antagonist that they all suddenly want him to be. You can have role sense trouble and they know they've succeeded. And you can tell there's nothing troubling about this person. He's just a little eccentric. He's fine. Uh, Everything's good. You don't have to worry about that. Or, you know, uh, after half an hour searching, uh, the strange billion-year-old corridor under the mine, and you saw interesting stuff on the south end. You, the game master, don't have any interesting stuff on the north end. You go, um, roll a sense of trouble. It's like, oh, yeah, there's nothing there. That's fine. Now, one way to do that is sort of montage ahead, but sometimes players don't trust you. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, <laughs> so the, the thing is, with that, uh, I would maybe deliver that there's nothing through an investigative ability. Just because... They, if they've spent points on that sense trouble and they succeed and they're, well, I'm going to spend three points because I really don't want to get caught surprised by those demon babies again. And they spend the three points and the reward was, Oh, there's nothing. The, the, the north end of the corridor is empty. They may feel a little bit hosed by having to spend points to determine that. So ideally what you can do is say, you know, Oh, you've got two architecture. You can just tell by looking at the joins. Uh, on this uh, wall that there's no way that there could be a secret passage. It's completely uh, clear just like it looks in your flashlights.
0: That that works if you have the applicable skill and you can think of a way to do it. Uh, What I do in that instance, though, is I refund. Then you refund the the points. The the points spent on – if the answer is there is no trouble – then you, you get him
1: back. So, so this is this is the gumshoe mechanical equivalent of it's it's just the cat. Exactly. Yeah. It's the right, it's yeah. the jump scare that turns out to be nothing. Right. Yeah. So um uh so like the it's just the cat. Don't overuse that in game. I would say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you've got characters that can't be moved off the pixel, uh, short of that. Uh, I, that, that is certainly another um, uh, a linoleum knife uh, in your belt.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an emergency measure, mm-hmm. but, uh, but one worth using. Um, well, I sense that there's no trouble here. And as we are uh, adventurous characters who move forward into danger, uh, driven uh, by our drives, it's time for us to head through this commercial and see what peril waits for us on the other side.
1: They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a
0: loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrain Press web store or a
1: top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet. From gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified
0: players through. Belle Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The
1: Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie, shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath,
0: where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat.
1: This is Normal Now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe.
0: Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points.
1: They haunt you as fiendish cards, with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions.
0: Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found-object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris.
1: And the Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry, set in the aftermath reality.
0: Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before. Or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrain Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or the Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pellgrainpress.com slash shop. It's time once more for fun with science. And this time around, uh, beloved Patreon backer Chris Sellers wishes us to confront the science of horrible clogging goop uh, because uh, he wants us to uh, look at fatbergs. He sent us a a clip to a particular New York Times story on a fatberg uh, found uh, clogging Uh, the uh, drainage system of uh, Sidmouth in England, but this is a a well-known phenomenon where uh, we, in our modern era, tend to flush stuff uh, into the sewage system that is kind of uh, goopy and coagulate-y, or um, maybe it's not so goopy when we put it in there, Uh, but uh, once it gets on down, of course baby wet wipes are a big problem Uh, and then they get all tangled up with with, uh, fat and grease and they Coagulate and it's everybody's had the experience of having a stopped drain. Well, the an entire city's drain can be stopped. In this case, Sidmouth had one the size of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, uh, but it was sort of off to the side in the systems, uh, so it wasn't actively clogging anything until it got particularly uh, uh, gigantic. So so far, this is just science. This yeah, is just the, the science of goop and gunk, and uh, there's all sorts of stuff that could be in there. But um, of course. Uh, Chris doesn't want us to just stop there. It's time for us to turn this into science fiction or perhaps even science nonsense. So how do we uh, turn uh, the fatberg uh, into an interesting part of a uh, scenario? And that the, uh, Chris, of course, mentions the obvious one, which is that it is a coalescing uh, shoggoth or blob or ooze. We did a horror hut on uh, the whole ooze uh, genre. Uh, what can we do differently uh, for uh, starting out and making an,
1: a, a fatberg at first? I mean, to begin with, uh, you can just set it up as the MacGuffin. It's the, or not even the MacGuffin, the the the, the hook, the premise. It's what gets all the characters down into the sewers. Uh, there's a fatberg, and they all have to go down in there, and they're chiseling away at it. And uh fatbergs delightfully generally are more likely to happen in old sewers than they are in new sewers because the things that uh when you when you flush your wet wipe, uh which you're not supposed to do, what happens in an older sewer is it gets entangled on a projection, and that can be either a crumbling, uh, part of the concrete. It can be an extension of, of rebar. It can be, you know, just a, a, a fun Victorian ornamented lip that uh, they put in the sewer for no reason. Uh, whatever it is, it's the act of tangling the, uh, non-biodegradable component or the slowly biodegradable component that begins the process of creating turbulence of the water. The turbulence attracts the soap and other fats, hence Fatberg. And so the, uh, the, the cooking grease, you know, uh, is most of the fat that is in a Fatberg. And then, uh, if the sewer water is a little bit alkaline, which comes from detergent flushing out of your, your laundry room, uh, then the alkalinity in the water turns the, uh, the fat into a, a primitive soap and the primitive soap then can harden, uh, into the consistency of the concrete that was crumbling away in the first place. So you have a thing that it, it's not just a matter of like, you know, you know, prying it out with a little crowbar. You have to chisel it out. It took uh, something like seven weeks, nine weeks to remove just a little old fatberg in Sidmouth, which was just a baby fatberg. As you say, it was only the size of the leaning tower of Pisa. The largest fatberg uh, in England ever was in Liverpool, in the Birchall Street uh, sewers in uh, 2019, it uh, was still being removed in July of 2019. Four hundred Something had pooled in the city's liver. Exactly. Uh, it was 400 tons. Uh, that's a lot of Fatberg. Uh, there was a Fatberg discovered under Whitechapel, which always makes me very excited. Uh, that was a 130-ton Fatberg, 250-meter-long, 800-plus-feet-long uh, Fatberg under Whitechapel. And uh, that fatberg, of course, uh, is the sort of fatberg that is going to be accumulating badnesses. So even if it's not just you get your characters down into the sewer, they're chipping away. Uh, and then the thing that's been in the Whitechapel sewers uh, come since Jack the Ripper times comes after them. And it, uh, you know, the Lord knows what that could be, but it's something awful um, uh, because it's uh, I mean, it might literally be awful. It might be, you know, discarded people parts. Uh, kidneys and whatnot that Jack the Ripper just threw into the drain, and they've been down there, you know, pulsating with malevolent evil and, and growing themselves, uh, you know, rat bodies and whatnot. And, and then they, then they come after you in revenge for the, uh, at the surface world, uh, for ignoring them. That's, that's the sort of thing that, you, you know, it's a standard sewer adventure of whatever kind you have, but the Fatberg is the reason to do it. Uh, this Whitechapel Fatberg in complete contravention to occult protocols. Uh, They cut pieces of the fatberg off and uh, dried it and then displayed it in the Museum of London, (laughs) which, you know, I, you know, this seems like more the sort of thing you would display in the Museum of, I don't know, Davenport, Iowa. I mean, you're you're (laughs) London, for God's sake. Why are you displaying fatberg pieces? Surely, surely there's literally anything else that you could put that in that but they did. And so that this is now it's the thing. There was something in the sewer that was uh, caught up in it. It's been taken up. Some idiot has put in a museum. And now the, 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 the sewer monsters, the, the, the chuds, the, the half human, half crocodile people are, are coming up and they're coming after their, their piece of fatberg and it's drawing them to attack the museum. So fatbergs don't just live in the sewers. They get carried away. And in fact, uh, when you chop out the pieces of fatberg, as I mentioned, it's basically a giant hard piece of soap. So you can take it to a biodiesel facility and render the fat down, you know, pump out the alkaline. And now you've got, uh, biodiesel and you can, and use it to power, uh, little cars and whatnot. So the, uh, the other thing that the fatberg does, it's taken off to some remote, uh, processing plant way off in the edge of town and, that can again be the locus of terror that whatever came up out of the sewer is being transported with the fatberg out to you know uh you know Ebbingsley estates or wherever it is they keep the biodiesel converters near Liverpool and that's how this you know sewer monster is attacking some place that only has the most tangential of connections to the old Victorian sewer
0: now uh the obvious sort of structural uh, container for that is the classic doctor who danger in an installation uh where the Uh, the installation is the uh, biodiesel uh, recovery center or the sewer itself where they're removing things. And so there's a group of workers who are being systematically menaced by whatever the fat bird monster is. And the player characters come along and uh, they have a group of uh, GMCs to get uh, knocked off in sequence uh, as they try to uh, deal with this. Uh, The, typical thing about that plot line is that the installation is somehow cut off from the outside world. So there'd have to be uh, some reason why, uh, you know, suddenly the uh, sewers are closed off and uh, the uh, everybody's kind of trapped down there for the duration. Um, And so uh, other uh, less obvious ways to deal with this, you could do a murder mystery where a murder victim is found uh, inside a fatberg and uh, that's actually just legit a thing that makes it, you know, the, the victim has been missing for years and years, and this accretion of goo has uh, gathered around them, and so they've been preserved in the fat, uh, and it's a, uh, a long-ago murder that you then uh, start investigating and leads you to other things. Or uh, if you have a weird supernatural or weird science thing going on, it could be that somehow uh, the... Uh, recently killed person is inside this older fatberg layer, so you have to figure out what uh, strange uh, a mechanism uh, uh, caused uh, that to happen for a vampire game i think it might be interesting uh, perhaps you have your uh, that's the place where the vampires uh, sleep that's their native soil it's got uh, bits and pieces of transylvanian dirt in it and what uh, better place for weird, creepy Nosferatu to uh, bed down in than uh, in their burrows inside a fatberg. No one's going to come looking for them there. No one even wants to come near it. It's it's horrible and smells bad. And uh, your your clue to what their lair is might be that they they smell strangely soapy. Why why, why do these Nosferatu uh, smell like horrible rancid soap?
1: Yeah, the um, and then and that can be you know the the clue that brings you back because if they're And remember, this this thing, like we've said, is the size of, you know, a little one is the size of a 747. A big one is the size of, you know, a fairly large uh, ship. And so you have the possibility that, you know, what can you fit? A hundred people, 150 people easily into a 747? If it's a 747 where you have to lie down and sleep, maybe it's only 50 vampires that can live there. So it can be a real... A, a real nest with with layers and and whatnot, and then, as the vampires crawl out, that can be the clue to their depredations as they're leaving this uh this deposit of of hardened kernelized alkaline soap, and that leads the inspector the the or uh, the player character to um discover oh. They're, they're somehow connected what Fatberg. We have to go into the sewers to look for the Nosferatu. Let's not see all the same hands. And and, and, and that can be sort of a, a fun, uh, you know, forensical clue type thing. Uh, you know, you, you've spotted these little crumbles of, of fatty borax uh, lying around. Remember, Fatty Borax Robin. He was a heck of a heck of a guy. He was uh, mostly one of uh, my favorite rockers, pictures, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, That's right.
0: Now uh, you could have, uh, of course, other creatures could be uh, a nesting inside a fatberg. You know, your your ghouls or uh, uh, or what have you, and uh, that might make them extra slippery and hard to get a hold of. And again, that might be a clue uh, to their. Uh, you know how hard they are to wrap your arms around them which of course is something that you immediately want to do with ghouls when you run into them uh their slipperiness can be an an extra escape bonus or what have you and a clue to uh, where they're hiding out uh you could do a post-apocalyptic game where fuel is in uh short supply uh so you're questing down into the sewers in search of the fatberg and so in that scenario it becomes the treasure that you're going in down down into the dungeon to get and you can haul out you know as much of it as you can carry over a period of many trips well uh, guess what the carnivorous things uh, down in the sewer slash dungeon are waiting for all of the post-apocalyptic survivors to come down and be tasty around them Uh, and so they're all staked out around the fatberg and uh, and of course uh, you could then have a situation where you're uh, not just uh, predators who are treating it as a lure, but there would be rival uh, bandits who, uh, you know, once you get out of the sewers, who want to take your valuable uh, chunks of fat away from you, and you have to uh, battle them off. And it could be, you know, the the currency of a, a post-apocalyptic world is uh, I'll take uh, three fistfuls of uh, of uh, fatberg in exchange for that uh, case. Of uh, pre-apocalypse uh, wine, and uh, uh, oh, you want a crossbow? Well, that's uh, that's a whole person's
1: worth of fatberg. It's a yeah, it's 180 pounds of fatberg. <laughs> Feel free to call someone that and see what happens. Um, <laughs> Fatberg's also uh wash ashore they uh, the the word originally was coined when they saw these things washing ashore in Wales and didn't know what they were and then discovered that they had uh, been basically lumps of cooking fat but i'm not sure if they were washed out of the welsh sewer into the ocean and then solidified or if it was like a bunch of beach partiers that left their cooking fat or or beach um uh uh, caravan dwellers left their their cooking fat to congeal and it and it solidified out and that got washed back in with the tide but anyway the point is you can have a fatberg that washes in from out of the ocean if you've got a, a nearby sewer or some other way of getting cooking grease into or other kind of uh grease into the thing and one of the things i guess you can have is fatberg bubbles up Royals into town. Everyone's curious. They're like, "This is a little town. We don't have a big old sewer." And everyone's very ecologically conscious anyway and doesn't flush their wet wipes. And of course, the fat comes from a sunken ship that was, you know, that, that went down a long time ago. And now the fatberg has come out and 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 uh, washed ashore. And the question is. Why did that happen? That's not the normal practice of sunken ships and you have to go find out that the ship was caught in the Bermuda Triangle and that everyone got saponified by the, you know, vortex or that the deep ones uh, were down there and um uh after they were done uh with the uh with the genetic material, they just had a bunch of leftover fat and goo and uh, shot it out uh, you you know, to, to, to saponify and that that is some other kind of mystery that's happening that, that, uh, that, the, uh, the Fatberg production is, uh, oceanic as opposed to sewery. And that leads to a lot of ugly questions about where did all that grease come from underwater? And was it people? Was there a, a a ship containing some kind of, um, you know, maybe a, a ship, uh, contained palm oil or something and went down and then that oil saponified and, and, and washed ashore, but you know something is is down in in that uh, in that hold. And the reason that it broke loose is that the 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 kithoga that was in the ship's hold is awakened and is scrabbling around underground underwater and releasing chunks of fatberg. And in that case, the fatberg is more the um, you know the 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 ominous the omen the thing that indicates oh a horror is coming. It's the you know, the opening uh, raven on the fence type situation.
0: It could be a, a, a low rent submarine for seagulls. <laughs> yeah. This big fatberg uh, lands and they uh, hollow it out and uh, they attach some, uh, some fins to it. And uh, uh, they, uh, that allows them to get up to the surface world. And uh, so the, the fatberg turns out to be, uh, you know, their ship or uh, it could even be, uh, you know, there could be a very strange alien race that it could be a, a Fatberg UFO, that it's, it's uh, congealed fat from space that has been uh, contained the uh, stasis pods of these uh, predatory creatures that have uh, come to Earth. And uh, the fat sort of, uh, uh, you know, the outer layer burns out uh, as it goes through the atmosphere, but there's a lot of it. And by the time it lands in the ocean and then uh, comes up to shore. There's no evidence of, of that having happened, and uh, you know, it could be your basic, uh, you know, your alien landing craft, or it could be um, something that uh, your undersea arthropods uh, lay their eggs in, and the uh, their larvae feed on the uh, on the fat as it uh, heads to the surface, and then when they uh, uh, hit shore, uh, they uh, pupate. Into the uh, into the next stage of their, uh, their horrifying life cycle.
1: Yeah, or the fatbergs themselves could be individual um, pieces of some larger entity. Like if you imagine sort of a a vast giant, you know, like one of the Blakeian giants that underlays Britain. You know, maybe they're just you know lying there, and, and pieces of their of their fat and their sweat and uh, their and their wastes are are forming as britain becomes ever more toxic and bad and uh and so the, this is basically the giant underneath britain um beginning to uh, evanesce first you know the his his exhalation his, his breath you get a noxious you know nitrogen cloud upwelling which i'm sure you uh can get in in all manner of sewer situations and then uh, pieces of him are, are are popping off and now if you're a cultist and you're like oh so most fatbergs, yeah, they're just baby wipes. But this fatberg, this is the the extruded, uh, uh, you know, togu of um, uh, the giant uh, Albion, and we can use this for magic. And so it it becomes that an individual fatberg is connected to the organic matter of the giant that underlays Britain, and that is why it's the fatberg MacGuffin that everyone is is chasing after.
0: You, you distill a perfume or unguent from it that. Uh... Uh, grant you the, the power of the, the giant that you take it from. Well, we could
1: literally talk about uh, Fatberg story seeds all day long. But Not least because saying Fatberg before any unusual noun makes a new non-player character name. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it's time for us to uh, to drift aimlessly
0: across the ocean that is this next commercial and, and see what shore we wash up on next. the best of Aspfageln is now available at Drive Through
1: RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013, that's spelled F E N I X, can now be grabbed in special English editions, containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height and such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis and Pete Nash. Also, find DICE, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory,
0: and Freeway Warrior, the series of post apocalyptic Choose
1: Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix...
0: And the new Sagebrush and Six-Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astvigeln on drive-through. Keep this podcast from going down the drain by pitching in alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Anderson Todd. Dan Simons. Chad Ward. Neil Dalton. And Neil Kaplan. The retinal scan you went through to enter the general atmosphere of hush-hush and hugger-mugger surrounding you, and a certain sense that all is not well and that you are being watched welcome you to... The civilized world. No, ha ha, no, they they, rec- they welcome you to the Tradecraft Hut, of course, Robin, because here in the Tradecraft Hut, uh, we are talking about that, perhaps uh, not the best of spies, but the best of spy subjects in that he's fun to talk about, he's on the side of good, and his biographer had the same name as him. So, what's not to love about <laughs> yes. William Stevenson, possibly the man called Intrepid, but possibly the man who picked up cables addressed to Intrepid because it was his office. Robin, tell us about William Stevenson with a PH, not William Stevenson with a V unless you want to.
0: So I've been uh, researching William Stevenson because in 1956, in my fictional Extreme Drift of Fall of Delta Green game, he is the uh, boss man given orders to the player characters and the Dominion Bureau of Research. And so I started uh, reading the famous biography of him, The Man Called Intrepid. Confusingly, as you point out, had written by William Stevenson with a V. And after a while, noticed that it ha- that biography has a certain ripping yarns quality to it. And as you have pointed out in the past, that uh, in general, uh, any uh, spy uh, biography is uh, largely fiction. And uh, because I got a bit of a a whiff of that from, from this book, which is a classic of its day uh a book to buy for your dad on father's day book uh all full mm. of gathering storms and and churchill and so uh <laughs> since then then that even that is not the first biography of uh, stevenson the first one is called the quiet canadian uh by h
1: montgomery hyde yes it's it's companion book the loud american
0: <laughs> well that that's
1: just this podcast um, like, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so i found out there, there was a later biography written in 98 Uh, by uh, a journalist called Bill McDonald called The True Intrepid. And he is a journalist who decided to do something unusual in the annals of uh, spy nonfiction and uh, do research and have attributions and uh, footnotes. uh, Because (laughs) the original is just stuff that William Stevenson said to William Stevenson. And then William Stevenson wrote down in a ripping manner about William Stevenson. So I was expecting... Some debunking, because uh, uh, there is a note of skepticism in in your voice and at in the uh, intro there. And certainly a lot of particularly Anglo writers have uh, tried to downgrade the importance of William Stevenson. But weirdly, the things that Bill McDonald found that were uh, contrary to the previous record were things like, oh, no, it turns out uh, he was from an Icelandic family in Winnipeg. Uh, not that And the more outlandish stories about uh, Stevenson is like, well, that that could be true, actually, Uh, because uh, Stevenson did a good job of making sure there were no records left of his not only his endeavors during uh, World War Two, but his uh, pre-war endeavors. And it is. A strange and amazing story. So um, he uh, fights initially in uh, World War One and is gassed in the trenches and is given a nice, safe office job. And he says, uh, nope, just because my lungs have been damaged don't, doesn't mean I can't keep endangering myself. I'm going to uh, falsify my health records and uh, join the RAF. And so he was a, a flying ace in World War One, uh, and uh, possibly shot down uh, Manfred von Richthofen. There's a whole bunch of flying Richthofens, and uh, this one was actually uh, a uh, someone who uh, took down tactically important tactics instead of his more famous brother, who took down flashy uh, uh, targets, and. Mm-hmm. Stevenson was uh, was shot down and captured, spent some time in a German prisoner of war camp. And according to uh, uh, one story, a story that Stevenson wanted struck from man called Intrepid. So that sounds kind of like it's real. Uh, he, uh, while he was imprisoned in this German camp, he noticed that the can openers were much better than the can openers available at that time. Uh, in uh, north america and it's the basic can opener design that we know today but because of the war the uh, germans were only able to patent it in germany and turkey and so after the war he takes one of these can openers back and that is his first business venture in winnipeg to manufacture these can openers and bring them to the, the wider world now sadly the best story would be that this is the beginning of the sudden wealth that he experienced somewhat inexplicably, uh, in the early thirties when he moved to England. But unfortunately, uh, all of the evidence points to the, his can opener business in, uh, Manitoba as a, as a failure and something that sent him, uh, a ditching his Icelandic family and the, uh, uh, family members he owed debts to for his first business. And so he, heads over to England. And then next we know of him, it's the early 30s, and suddenly he is a renowned scientist and industrialist and making radios and uh, creating various uh, technical innovations around them. And so he gets his fingers in all sorts of pies, not just uh, the uh, technical uh, or technological side of uh, radio and film, but the entertainment side. So among the businesses he creates is... Sound City Films, and it kind of seems like he built Shepperton Studios, the still famous film studio uh, today, <laughs> although there are no records going back that far. Uh, and uh, it's the, the whole quiet Canadian theme of, well, he maybe did these things. Um, he was involved, uh, definitely, uh, one of the people involved in building the Earls Court Exhibition Hall, which is still a famous London landmark. Um, and mysteriously that, uh, well, not so mysteriously because it was very expensive, went bankrupt just in time to be taken over uh, as a crucial installation uh, for uh, uh, the home front war preparation in World War II. Um, so his buddies at this time include H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw. He's uh, soon friends with uh, film industry people like Alexander Korda, who's uh, also involved in the war effort, and his wife, Merle Oberon. He was uh, pals with Garbo. Later, he is pals with Ian Fleming. And most importantly, he is uh, friends with Wild Bill Donovan. Uh, Possibly they meet in World War One or not, we don't know. Uh, but we know that they're fast friends by the 30s uh, when the uh, threat of the Axis powers is rising. And Stevenson knows Churchill and I think introduces Donovan to Churchill. Donovan knows FDR, introduces Stevenson to FDR. And through that, Stevenson is involved uh, even in the 30s, in in uh, spying to gather information for uh, Churchill. And there's one amazing story from a Man Called Intrepid, which, again, I expected to hear debunked, uh, which is that he, uh, as a radio executive, uh, visited Germany in the late 30s, and the German generals explained to him in great gleeful detail all of the uh, tactics of blitzkrieg and how important uh, fast radio communications would be to that. And you think, oh, well, that's the bad guys telling James Bond their secret plan, uh, which his friend Ian Fleming will later write about. That's crazy. That yeah. that can't be true. But McDonald says, "Well, you know what? It's it's possible." But the thing that Man Called Intrepid leaves out is that he is traveling around Germany with Lord Londonderry, uh, a, a British. Uh, Lord, obviously, and business magnate, and also himself a giant Nazi. So uh, <laughs> that may well have been the entree that allowed uh, the generals to relax their guard around unassuming Bill Stevenson and uh, uh, give uh, their their uh, attack plan away.
1: I mean, the, the the thing about the world of the 1930s that people forget is that it was very—I mean, it was insanely clubby and class ridden in in the way that our world also is, but is much less so than it was then. And at some point, if you had gone to the right schools or knew the right people, uh, you could basically get anywhere because there was no real sense of operational security. And certainly there wasn't a sense that, Oh, you're a, a bunch of Wehrmacht generals. Maybe don't brag about the Blitzkrieg uh, in public. That was the opposite. It's like, no, you're, you're just talking to your buddies a bunch of british aristocrats and if they're nazi aristocrats then you don't have any compunction about saying what you want because it's assumed that the 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 sort of you know old school tie uh, writ broadly is greater than uh you know national allegiances and so the the notion that one rich guy can wander around and meet everybody and hear everything it's used in um uh in fiction, obviously, the the Lanny Bud uh, spy novels by Upton Sinclair are, are full of that kind of thing. But it's also very realistic in terms of the world of the 1930s and 40s uh, before World War II, and then the consequent social upheavals sort of knocked that uh, that thinking a little bit on its heels.
0: And Stevenson, of course, not an aristocrat, but he's you know he's just a, a humble guy from nowhere in the middle of in Manitoba, but. Canadians then is now kind of read as neutral in the British class system. <laughs> and right, so yeah. he uh, had his entree. And so he kind of became the the conduit uh, between FDR and Churchill because he was, uh, had strong rapport with both of them. And kind of quasi unofficially, they just, well, why don't you set up the British security coordination, uh, which was it an MI6 operation or was it just uh, Stevenson freelancing with Churchill's uh, I- imprimatur. Well, it kind of seems like like B for a lot of the time. Um, an observation that McDonald makes is that both of the earlier biographers, Hyde and Stevenson, uh, were uh, 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 Brits, and so they tend to uh, ignore the contribution of other Canadians to Stevenson's efforts, and they just sort of talk about him as the kind of the lone hero. But the British Security Coordination uh, was a large organization. It was headquartered at Thirty Rock. 30, and uh suggesting that it's always important to have a powerful Canadian there. And mm-hmm. it was staffed. <laughs> uh, there were hundreds of uh, Canadians working there that he attracted basically through Watt ads in Canada. A lot of them were women. Uh, but there was basically a full-scale Anglo-Canadian uh, spy agency operating uh, both immediately before and during the war. J. Edgar Hoover, initially not a fan yeah. uh, because... You know, uh, when the U.S. was officially neutral, he didn't want a bunch of British agents uh, running around. We talked about Roald Dahl as a British agent seducing uh, society ladies in uh, Washington, D.C. during this period while he was working uh, under the aegis of Stevenson. So uh, eventually he and Hoover kind of came to an understanding once the war actually started. But um, And he was running operations, not just in the US and uh, not just influence operations to uh, move uh, people toward uh, wanting to support uh, Britain uh, and busting uh, local uh, German sympathizers. But he wound up running operations all through Central and South America as well. And so, for example, he arranged a coup that uh, kicked out the uh, then president of Bolivia, who was uh, a, a German sympathizer, but he wrote a letter That uh, basically got him on the outs with the Germans and ruined that relationship and got all the beautiful, tasty tungsten uh, for the Allies. So, again and again, the theme is that he may unusually have done way more than, than he claimed to have done in that sort of, you know, well... I saved the free world, but I'm a Canadian. You know when you get big-headed about yeah. it? Yeah, um, right. Uh, camp X is another uh, famous part of his operation that was a espionage training camp on uh, the shores of Lake Ontario. It's now called Intrepid Park. It's a, a public park now. Um, and there was a not very good uh, CBC wartime spy, spy show uh, set all around that.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, the British at the time, in the in 1940, are... Uh, they, they have, a, they have, uh, resources that the FBI doesn't, especially in terms of cryptanalysis and intercepting international cables. Uh, and that's, that's the trench in, in the same way that the Americans can go to any intelligence agency in the world and say, Oh, did you want some NSA secrets and fold them out? And it's, you know, huge amounts of telephone intercept data that literally no other country is able to get the same way. Stevenson was able to go to Hoover and say, oh, look, we've intercepted a bunch of mail from German agents in America. Would you like it? And then uh, Hoover, not being an idiot, said, well, yes, I would like it. And then that sets off the uh, BSC-FBI coordination and they they wrap up the Joe K. spy ring and uh, a lot of other uh, spies and agents of influence uh, basically get on the FBI radar because they're fed to them by the British in the same way that, you know, we will go to, you know, I don't know, Jordan or somewhere and give the Jordanian intelligence a bunch of, uh, cell phone data. And then that puts, you know, whatever terrorist on the Jordanians radar. And then we leave it to the Jordanians to do whatever they need to do in the same way that it, you know, Stevenson is not down there arresting. German American Bundists, he basically has turned over all of their secret communications to the FBI and lets, you know, J. Edgar Hoover get the credit and then use whatever methods Hoover would like. He's just suggesting
0: that it would be nice if certain things happened. Yeah, which is very Canadian. Canadian leadership. Absolutely. So he uh, goes back into private business after the war and uh, in my campaign becomes involved in controlling paranormal threats. But uh, in in reality, in the early 60s, he uh, suffers a stroke. That uh, leaves him with a cane for the rest of his life, but he struggles back and uh, overcomes uh, the uh, debility uh, created by that stroke. And he he finally dies at age 92 in 1989 at Golden Eye Estate in Jamaica, so at the uh, home of his uh, longtime friend, Ian Ian Fleming, and uh, uh, passes into uh, a quiet legend and and the unusual spy legend in which he might have done a whole bunch more things that he... uh, didn't even brag about. He just didn't want that can opener story getting out.
1: Yeah, he was played by uh, David Niven in a TV miniseries that I watched as a young, impressionable boy. And he kind of looks like Noel Coward if you're looking for, you know, sort of a facial, uh, signal for, uh, William Stevenson. And of course, as you say, uh, with his background in, in radio and telecommunications and, uh, and a finger in many technological pies, he does become a natural guy who is involved in fringe stuff uh for the 1950s and then of course his you know stroke can be a a failed sanity check at some point when the migo come after him so lots of possibilities uh for william stevens indeed uh, is there other fun nuggets that can tie him into cool gaming activity or is it just what more do you need people he's fighting nazis and carrying a cane
0: i believe i've supplied n- nuggets of plenty plenty because yeah, basically he can know anybody. Uh, he was um, involved in global development uh, efforts both before and after the war, so uh, he can have entree into virtually uh, a- anywhere outside the uh, the communist bloc, and uh, he can be can be a figure all the way up until uh, the end of the eighties. So uh, there's uh, there's endless gold to mine from the uh, uh, legend of, uh, of William Stevenson.
1: And of course, as someone who lives in Bermuda, he's at ground zero for the Bermuda Triangle. So, yeah, wh-
0: why do you think he's living in Bermuda? That, that right, come on, it's
1: fun. not because it's nice uh, and 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 a British uh, crown colony. It's because he's got to keep an eye on the on the vortex people. Well, I guess uh, before the vortex people come in and shut down our podcast for uh, saying too much, uh, seeming seems unlikely, we can uh, skip ahead uh, through perhaps a mysterious triangular shaped vortex into the next hut. What are swords without sorceries? Nada! What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss! Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivy, Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivy, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries.
0: Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find
1: gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and
0: Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign.
1: Order and find bonus downloads and resources at SwordsAndSorceries.com
0: That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivy. It's time once more to enter that most mysterious, that most ill-defined of huts, the huts whose theme we're not entirely sure what it is, except it's bounded by the weird. But then we look out the window, see the alien big cat screaming on the moor. Over in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien drinking a kombucha and uh, talking smack about the reptoids. Yes, once more, we're in the Liptony hut, where all the mysteries that don't fit into other huts reside. And this time around... Beloved patron backer Dirk the Dice, if that is his real name, wants to know about Albert Porta and his doomsday prediction. Master Aliptinist, uh, what did you discover?
1: Well, first, which is completely uh, on brand, his real name is Alberto Porta. Uh, he was born in 1853 in Italy, uh, studied at the University of Turin, fell in with the Jesuits, as you do, and the Jesuits sent him to Central America as an engineer. And he went to Guatemala to rebuild uh, churches and bridges that had been damaged by earthquakes and eventually moved to uh, the United States right after the 1906 earthquake and settled in Santa Clara, California. He was a professor of civil engineering at a Jesuit college in Santa Clara called Santa Clara College uh, for a while. And uh, at some point is no longer a Jesuit professor of engineering, but works directly for a a Jesuit astronomer named Jerome Sixtus Ricard at the Santa Clara Observatory. And uh, Ricard needs a guy who's good with math to do the calculations of his sunspot observations. Uh, Father Ricard has other stuff to do. Uh, He doesn't need to be bothering himself. This guy, Porta, He's an engineer, he knows math, we'll just put him to do the grunt work, and uh Father Ricard can have his newsletter, The Sunspot, come out and inform uh farmers up and down the West Coast that sunspots cause weather, and based on his observation of sunspots and the math done by his good buddy, Albert Porta, he can uh, tell you uh, when to plant your, you know, chervil or whatever the hell it is you plant there. And then Porta realizes that he is doing all the grunt work and getting none of the glory, starts his own newsletter. And the Oakland Tribune starts publishing his predictions of earthquakes and predictions of, uh, uh, of storms and other weather phenomena, because he says... I worked with father Ricard at the prestigious Santa Clara observatory and father Ricard taught me all I know. And I have moved beyond his primitive wisdom to an advanced system of predictions and father Ricard, not the first or last person to get very mad at Albert Porta, got very (laughs) mad at Albert Porta and denounced him in the pages of the sunspot. But, uh, Porta was moving from strength to strength. The Oakland tribune syndicated his column. It was all over the country. And in, uh, 1919, he saw that there was going to be a planetary alignment, uh, noted scientist, savant and archeologist was how he was signing his name.
0: Right. And as we all know, planetary alignments have to be bad.
1: They are. They do. Archeologist, apparently his code for lived in Guatemala, but he, uh, he, he wrote that uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune were all going to align on one side of the sun. And Uranus was going to be on the other side. And this, septet the league of planets was going to cause <laughs> uh, basically a hole to be drilled through the sun by their gravity and the ensuing solar prominence would make a sunspot so big that it would basically doom the earth right. uh, december 17th 1919 take it to the bank earth gonna be doomed
0: as it had doubtless done every other previous time, the planets had aligned.
1: That's why history only goes back nine years, Robin, yes. Yes. And if uh, people were alive and paying attention in 2012, they may remember a similar amount of Bosch and nonsense being talked about planetary alignments. Well, this still was Bosch. And there was a professor at the University of Michigan named William Hussey, who was especially mad that uh, people, uh, when there was a, 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 a meteor that uh, was very bright and very nearby uh, in and was seen in Michigan. And people would call up Professor Hussey and say, is this Albert Porta's doomsday coming? And uh, Professor Hussey says, there's no such thing. Stop calling him Professor Porta. He's not a real professor. He's not a real person. He's just a jerk. And then Hussey's <laughs> uh, denunciations were so uh, vitriolic that people printed them uh, in newspapers and, but they printed them in sort of back pages and with sloppy copy editors. So all of a sudden after Hussey pokes his nose in, Albert Porta is now the University of Michigan professor. Albert Porta. Uh, <laughs> he's,
0: he's, he's a credentialed crank now.
1: Exactly. He's, he's a, a, a linotype error has given him a, 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 a valuable, um, a Big Ten doctorate. And if you think this made uh, Professor Hussey uh, happy, you are not paying attention. He gets even madder. And then, of course, in December 17th, 1919, uh, nothing happened. There, uh, there was people who were very mad, uh, a, a woman committed suicide and her husband, you know, wrote an angry letter. There was another guy who uh, left his farm to travel to Cleveland where he was informed that everyone in his church was going to be to await the end times. And it turned out his church just didn't like him and wanted him to go to Cleveland. <laughs> Being tricked into going to, to Cleveland is low. Yes. The, uh, zinc and lead miners in Oklahoma knew a, a good thing when they saw one and refused to go into the mines. During the doomsday time, I think that this may have been a little bit of um, like when students protest stuff so that they have to take, uh, get out of school, that sort of thing. I, I think that this is a, oh, we can't go into that mine. I guess we have to stay in Chickasha, Oklahoma and not go to the mine. Darn it type situation. But but there was ructions and disruptions. And then uh, people made fun of Dr. Porta. And uh, I say Dr. Porta, Mr. Porta. And he then said, all right, fair enough. Sunspots. Doesn't mean there's not going to be a giant earthquake that's going to destroy the world on Christmas. And it didn't. And so he he lost most of his syndicated uh, publications. Uh, Only the Tribune proudly continued to carry Albert Porta. And he uh, uh, apparently he just um, he he couldn't keep going. After that triumph, he died in 1923 at age 70. Uh, I am told the weather was warm. So, that is the the, the fun rise and rapid fall of Albert, Alberto, Porta, Jesuit-backed weirdo, and uh, pseudo-archaeologist, which is to say, our kind of guy. Right, Robin? Right.
0: Um, Now, his rookie mistake was predicting something verifiable and -hmm. something bad. But as you point out, in 2012, there was another uh, alignment, uh, the Harmonic Convergence. And the uh, people promoting that, uh, notably a guy named uh, Jose Argiles, uh, was positing, first of all, a, a positive event and one of inner spiritual transformation, uh, therefore unverifiable. People might have been spiritually changed in 2012. We we can't measure that.
1: And and we can't even uh, do a um, uh, a differential. uh, Were they more or less spiritually changed than in 2011? Exactly.
0: And, you know, we know that everything worked out great shortly after that. So, yeah, maybe maybe, maybe that was
1: verifiable. Yeah, maybe there was a problem that happened. Planetary alignments. Who who knows what they can do? They, They can relaunch Star Wars trilogies. They're not, so, they're not good. Is there
0: anything specific that we can, we've covered a bunch of sort of similar doomsday prophets. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's anything specific to this person uh, that, I guess, if if you happen to be doing something in the in the 1900s, in the aughts, uh, you could have him be your guy. You could do a plot line where, you know, someone's trying to rob a bank and uh, the distraction of the people thinking the world is going to end is your uh, way of covering that up or you could have, you know, coincidentally, the investigators uh, realize that Yogg-Sothoth is coming. And, that, you know, the reason that poor Porta is laughed at and mocked over his uh, failure to have the uh, uh, sunspot doom and then the earthquake is that player characters intervened. And they sent yeah. Yogg-Sothoth and uh, the Chatonians packing.
1: Yeah, the uh a a mysterious planetary alignment in 1919 that is Lovecraft territory if you're involving the Jesuits in your conspiracy, that's a a special connection that Porta has. Um I think also the time he spends in Guatemala not being an archaeologist is maybe another possibility that uh the end of the world is kind of a a misdirection and that uh, the real problem is that when he was in Guatemala he picked up a a, a Yog-Sothoth energy from one of those ruins that he was uh, helping to shore up from the earthquakes and uh it, it it you know fed on him and then it was using him to calculate when the stars would come right for its own um uh, uh fell purposes and you know the bay area of course is is full of crazies both then and now so you can certainly say that uh, uh as we say the 2012 harmonic convergence may have led to a certain brouhaha in the in the global culture scene maybe the 1919 one leads to the roaring 20s and all the craziness that uh, begins to percolate out of uh california maybe you can make albert porta the precursor figure that your fall of delta green characters in the 1960s are uncovering uh in uh in the bay area when they're trying to figure out why everything uh in uh san francisco is going bananas and it's not just the earthquake, it's that the earthquake magnetically drew this Yogg-Sothoth-charged Jesuit buddy to his um, to his action. And he's he's more sort of a like a the caterpillar that the Ichnuman wasp is controlling, the, the Gareth Hanrahan, if you will, of this uh, malevolent <laughs> Yogg-Sothothic entity.
0: Right. Well, once we're again making fun of Gar for having been harvested by a parasitic wasp, it's time uh, for us to uh, call an end to these proceedings, but uh, rejoin... Uh you all with a uh, similar nonsense next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Asphagelm, Arc Dream, Dark Tower,
1: and Profanity Software. Music as always, is by James Simple, Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Keep this intrepid podcast coming by forming an alliance with such backers as... Liz and Siski. Adam Grotjohn. Darren Dumay, Patrick Joint. And Ben Vincent. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your affinities with such hit shirts as Cthulhu is woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's
1: at Robin D Laws.
0: See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.